Bad Wild West Podcast. These are the true stories that made it wild. So what does the Mad Wild West have in store for you this episode? Well, we're going to take a look at the birth of a city, well, birth of a town, known as Los Angeles. We're going to look at how it got its name and how it all started. And then after that, we're going to follow up with how this beautiful start of a city became tainted by the Mad Wild West. So strap your six shooters on and tighten down your saddle. We're about to go for a Mad Wild West ride. It's newspaper headline time. Actually, it's going to be a little bit of a sprinkle of everything from a newspaper. And in honor of California, the coast of California, since that's what we're going to be talking about today as our main story, I wanted to read to you from the Daily Los Angeles Herald, November 28, 1878. So let's take a look and see what was going on during that time. Now, here's a good one. This is short and sweet, but think about this. These guys were still around. A shipment of Guinness Extra Stout, direct from Liverpool, in Pints and Courts. See Alex McKenzie at 127 Main Street. So that's how long Guinness has been around. They might have been a little crazy in the Wild West, but they had good taste in beer, it looks like. Three tramps were found sleeping in the workman's laundry on Requina Street about 11 o'clock last night and brought them to the lockup to await examination before Judge Peel on Friday, by which they are assured of three square meals on Thanksgiving Day. Not the most idyllic Thanksgiving Day, but I guess if, uh, if you're in jail, they'll feed you. Hopefully turkey. San Bernardino's poet Lariette was immersed in a water trough on Tuesday evening in order that he might learn that it is not just right for him to call people hard names. A local moralist observes that this is the revengeful world, and when a person consigns his fellow creature to the inferal regions, they object, and he must be prepared to pay the penalty." creative way to say what he was called. I guess he did pay the price on that one, didn't he? I don't know if there's any more water troughs sitting around LA streets. I was just there last month and didn't see any. This headline reads, Rowdyism Rampant, Four Assaults and Robberies in One Night. Now you gotta remember, Los Angeles was really small back then, so this is a big deal here. Los Angeles, between midnight and and daylight on Tuesday night was rampant with rowdyism and ruffleism. The ball opened about 12 o'clock by an assailant on Jacob F. Jerkins, former chief of police. It appears that he had been at the workmen's meeting in the Fifth Ward and had got back as far as the upper plaza on his return home when he was met by an acquaintance who stated that he had a friend at the Cape House whom he would like to take home and asked Jerkins to accompany him. While at the Cape House, John Mayer, who returned some months ago from state prison, accompanied by several other roughs, among whom was a San Francisco hoodlum known as Frenchie, also a state prison bird, came into the house and tried to kick up a row with Jerkins, who rather than get into a barroom fight, left, and as he reached the sidewalk, Mayer struck him on the back of the head twice, knocking him down. After he fell, Frenchie made a grab for his watch and chain, which Jerkins tried to save by clutching the chain. 
To loosen his hold, one of the crowd struck him on the hand and got possession of the watch. While down, Mayer kicked Jerkins in the face and otherwise abused him so that he was knocked out. Mayer saying, I'll fix you so that you won't send anyone up again. A lady living nearby at the juncture blew the policeman's whistle and the ruffins fled, leaving him as a thought dead. Jerkins, as soon as he regained consciousness, was taken to his home where he is now confined to bed. While his injuries are severe, they are not supposed to be dangerous. He exhibits cuts on his upper and lower lips, probably from the blow. He has five contusions upon his head, inflicted apparently by a blunt instrument, and is bruised somewhat about the sides, where he was doubtlessly kicked while down. The second chapter opened at the corner of Main and Requina Streets, where Charlie Laramie, who works in the meat store of the Messers, was assaulted about 4 o'clock in the morning. He had reached the corner of Main when he was accosted by one of three men who told him to stop. Charlie paying no attention to the command, the fellows caught him by the collar at the same time drawing a knife. This excited Charlie, and he struck the fellow a stunning blow which sent the man one way and the knife the other. Whereupon Charlie, without waiting to see the effect of his blow, took to his heels and reached the shop safely. About a half an hour later, while the driver of the American bakery wagon was delivering bread near Campbell's livery stable on Aliso Street, he was approached by a party of three, probably the same as that which attacked Charlie Laramie, who wanted to take possession of his wagon. As a leader came towards him, the driver struck at him with his whip, which startled his horses. The boy who was with him at the same time opening a bullseye lantern when the marauders fled. The final outrage that we have to chronicle was perpetrated on John Tamales, who, his assailants having Epicurean tastes, was despoiled of his whole outfit of that delicious consumable. Mayer, the principal of the attack on ex-chief Jerkins, was arrested about 10 o'clock yesterday morning by Officer Lockwood, who found him in bed at the residence of his parents. Concealed in the bed were a pair of heavy brass knuckles covered with blood, with which he is supposed to have struck Mr. Jerkins with. None of the rest of the rowdies have been arrested. Here you go. Here's a place for you to go on Thanksgiving Day. The bold headline reads, Beaver Tail Soup. Today, Thanksgiving Day, I will serve at the Palace Saloon from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. A delicacy never before offered in Los Angeles. Beaver Tail Soup. The tails were received from Arizona by Express today. Joe Brinson, proprietor. There you go. Doesn't even give you the address. I guess everybody knew where the Palace Saloon was. But Thanksgiving Day? I don't know if they're going to be serving beaver tail soup this year there in L.A., but maybe go check it out. Another quick headline. So this one here is taken from, again, Los Angeles Herald, October 20th, 1878. San Francisco, October 17th. Thomas L. Smith of Ladd and Smith, proprietors of a shooting gallery on Kearney Street, was accidentally killed this afternoon by Edwin S. Ladd, brother of the senior partner in the firm. 
young lad was examining a rifle when it went off, the ball striking Smith in the neck, who staggered towards Lad, exclaiming, Oh, Eddie, you have shot me, fell and expired within a few moments. Ladd surrendered himself at the police station. Deceased was native of Ohio, age 33. An unknown tramp was run over by an engine on the San Jose track between 15th and 16th streets this afternoon. The engine was backing down onto the track when deceased, who was crossing apparently became confused and taking the wrong track was knocked down by the tender and crushed under the wheels. Salt Lake City, October 19th. The hoisting works of the Ontario mine at Park City took fire last night at 12 o'clock while all the men were out of the mine at supper. The fire is supposed to have been accidental and originated in the oil room. When discovered, the flames were under headway and had encircled the fire pump, rendering the latter useless. The hoisting works, 300 tons of coal, the blacksmith shop, a large amount of wood, lumber, and one year's timber for the mine were destroyed. The machinery of the works is not materially damaged and pumping is expected to be commenced in a few days. It is estimated that the loss is about $200,000, which was a ton of money for back then. That's a couple million dollars now. Okay, this comes out of the Los Angeles Herald again. August 17th, 1878, Peterson executed. San Bernardino, August 16th. The execution of William Wilson, alias Peterson, took place today on a vacant lot opposite the jail. An enclosure 28 feet square and 16 feet high surrounded the scaffold so that none but those holding cards of admission could witness the execution, and these numbered about 50 persons. At 7.30, the doomed man was conveyed from the jail to the gallows, which he ascended with a firm stay. He was attended by the sheriff and two of his deputies and Reverend M. Costell, who administered him spiritual rites. Sheriff Davis read the death warrant, and at 7.45, the trigger which held the trap in place was sprung, and it fell like a flash, leaving the body to dangle in space. The neck was broken by the fall, and the suffering of the man was but slight, if any, only a slight quivering and muscular contraction being visible. The execution may be safely pronounced one of the most successful ones ever carried out, and Sheriff Davis and his assistants are entitled to great praise for the manner in which they perform so painful and unpleasant a duty. Peterson was born in Norway and was 43 years of age. At 15, he left home and went to sea and some years ago reached California. Four years ago, he had a difficulty with a man in Sacramento whom he had cut badly with a knife. Fearing arrest, he ran away and changed his name from Wilson to Peterson. He made no confession of his crime, but fully justified himself in killing Barrett, declining to make public the reason why he did so. He was devoid of any education whatsoever and was totally without moral training. And that is Mad Wild West Justice. There you have it. Those were some of the headlines in 1878 from the Los Angeles Herald. It's advertisement time. And you know what? We're going to take these advertisements from the same newspaper we've been reading through, the Los Angeles Herald. And again, this one here is November 28th, 1878. Flybrick, Allen's Flybrick, the little giant fly killer, kills all the flies in a room in two hours. 10 cents worth will kill more flies than $10 worth of flypaper. No dirt, no trouble. 
sold by druggist everywhere. Botanic Medicine Company, Buffalo, New York. And the picture, it's funny, it shows these two, it looks like kids, unwrapping this little brick and flies all around. And they're going to put it inside a pot, probably with some water maybe, I don't know. And one of the kids is saying, it lays them out. I don't know what's in that brick, but I wouldn't be touching it with my bare hands when I unwrapped it. And I don't know if I want to breathe in the same room that that brick's in. That's just me. Who knows what they had in it back then? I'm sure uh, the FDA wasn't as strong. It probably wasn't even in existence then. So uh, buy the fly brick at your own risk. That's all I got to say. Have you thought about getting married? Are you married? I don't know where this was 28 years ago when I got married, but a physiological view of marriage, woman and marriage, a guide to wedlock and confidential treaties on the duties of marriage and the causes that make you unfit for it. The Secrets of Reproduction and the Diseases of Women, a book for private, considerate reading, 260 pages, price is only 50 cents. The address is Dr. Butts. Number 12, North 8th Street, St. Louis, Missouri. The address to get this wonderful book by Dr. Butts is number 12, North 8th Street, St. Louis, Missouri. There you go. I don't know why it's just focused on women and they don't have one for the guy, but we are in the 1800s. So anyway, go out, get that book. I'm sure it's fascinating reading. And here's a marriage tip for all the men out there with wives. Do not buy that for your wife and give it to her as a gift. That will make you unfit for marriage. A little helpful tip for you. Hopefully you guys aren't getting tired of all the cure-all drinks that I've been reading to you, but they are everywhere in newspapers of the day in the 1800s. It was definitely the snake oil. I see now why the big joke is snake oil back then. Um, Here's one, same newspaper from LA, Dr. Pierce's Standard Remedies, Natural Selection, it says. Investigators of natural science have demonstrated beyond controversy that throughout the animal kingdom, the survival of the fittest is the only law that works. Does not the same principle govern the commercial prosperity of man? An inferior cannot supersede a superior article. By reason of superior merit, Dr. Pierce's standard medicines have outrivaled all others. Their sale in the United States alone exceeds $1 million per year, while the amount exported foots up to several hundred thousands or more a year. No business could grow to such gigantic proportions and rest upon any other basis than that of its merit. There you go. Step out, get Dr. Pierce's standard remedies. It doesn't say anywhere what it cures. So anyway, I guess it's for everything. Just drink it and you'll be healed of whatever you got. Dr. Pierce, genius man right there. Even in the 1800s, they wanted beautiful pearly white teeth. Here it says, prevent decay of the teeth with their surest preservative, aromatic sozodone. Whiteness of the dental row, a healthful rosiness and hardness of the gums, a sweet breath, an agreeable taste in the mouth. All of these can be yours with Sozodont. Does not such an invaluable toilet article, one so pure as well as effective, deserve the popularity it enjoys? Most assuredly. It has no rival worthy of the name. The ordinary powders and paste are nothing to it, and since its appearance have rapidly lost ground, sold by druggists. 
Soza don't. That's for your beautiful pearly whites. Don't think they carry that anymore. Here's an important one for all my friends out there in Los Angeles. Are you ready? Land for sale. 500 acres of good farming land and in a lot to suit purchasers. Five miles this side on the Santa Monica Road. Terms reasonable. Address box 1141. That's all it has. That's the address. 500 acres in Santa Monica. Imagine what that would be worth today. I think Every part of Santa Monica is pretty much built on now. But that's what was for sale. It was for sale. 500 acres could have been yours if you lived back in 1878. One last one. And this was not out of the newspaper. Something I found online here. Got any wine lovers out there? Well, we got a new one for you. Coca wine. For fatigue of mind and body. Sleeplessness. Despondency. From fresh coca leaves. And the purest wine. A pleasant tonic and invigorator. Sold 12 bottles at a time. I bet it would be a pleasant tonic and invigorator for sure. It's amazing the things that they used to do and serve in the mad wild west. Okay, our first main story, since we're focused on Los Angeles, is how did Los Angeles get founded? What started Los Angeles? Who picked that spot out and said, we're going to put a town here? Well, we're about to find out. So this story is from a gentleman by the name of Major Horse Bell. He was an early um, frontiersman that came to California in about 1849, I believe. He was there basically for the gold rush. And he writes his book as he got a little bit older. And this book was written uh, late 1800s, 1890s in there, 1880s. He gives us some great stories about California. And in particular, at least these stories, Los Angeles. So let's see what he has to say. From my historical bonanza, other matters were extracted, the most important of which was the fact of holy inspiration being the cause that induced the founding of the beautiful city. Subject matter of the following story, the truth of which is beyond the power of contradiction. Two months and a hundred years ago, three Spanish dragoons, followed by an Indian leading a mule, ascended the highest hill or bluff overlooking the present site of Los Angeles and the Rio, now called the Los Angeles River. Having attained the rugged summit, the three soldiers dismounted, and at the order of Sergeant Navarro, the elder, unsaddled and picketed their horses and placed their lances together over which they threw their blankets, thus forming a sort of tent. The Sumpner mule, having been relieved of its burden of vino catalana, having been taken therefrom, the sergeant drew from the pocket of his vest a small silver cup, filled it with the delicious fluid, passed it around, and each took a sip, almost as water out of their canteens. Banegas, who having followed the examples of his superiors, the three seated themselves, in which the sergeant produced some cigarettes, and they smoked. The beauty of the scenery that surrounded them was beyond the power of description. Their faces were turned toward the dark and craggy mountains that overhung the San Gabriel Mission, whose white walls and red roofs could be seen in the midst of the sea, of the green that surrounded it. The plains and rolling hills had discarded their mantle of green and donned their summer robes. Gazing toward the sun, which had now marked the first segment in the circle of its journey, plains, hills, forests, lakes, rivers, valleys, and towering mountains in splendid panorama met their wandering vision. 
to the rear of where the three warriors sat, and immediate to the line that marked the verge of the unknown sea in crescent shape lay in silent beauty the shimmering waters of a beautiful lake sheltered from the rude blast of the ocean by a rampart of kind and protecting hills. To the left for leagues could be traced the serpentine windings of the river as it swept through the valley toward the western horizon. To the rear and looking southward to the sea, the waters of a river swept by like a silver stripe in a ribbon of green, shaded by white-armed sycamore and the moor cottonwood, under whose protecting shades held countless herds of deer and antelope, while still beyond are to be seen rocklands in the ocean, posted like knights in armor, guarding the portals of paradise. Having in silence taken in this vision of beauty, Corporal Quintero was the first to speak. Sergeant, he said, my old and tired friend, at first I greatly marveled at your leading us to this fatiguing summit, but I now thank you for it. You have been here before, and we having shared with you the hard knocks of many campaigns, you wish to share with us the pleasures of this foresight of paradise. When did you first discover this magnificent view? It exceeds in beauty anything I've ever beheld, even in our beautiful Spain. My friend, answered the sergeant, it is a strange tale, but true. In a dream or a vision, I beheld this paradise. Thirty years ago, when yet a boy, before I had buckled on the armor of Spain, approaching my native city of Granada, I stopped to rest on the famous summit called the Moor's Last Sigh. While drinking in the magnificence of Granada, the beauty of the Vega, and the silver sheen of its rivers in its serpentine winding, I fell into a sound slumber, and in my dreams was transported to this very spot, and instead of my armed comrades, as now, our blessed lady, the angel queen, stood beside me in a halo of glory, and after pointing out the surrounding loveliness of nature, she indicated the spot below us whereon I should found a city that in time should rival and eclipse in magnificent and beauty our famed Granada, that the valley before us would in wealth and productiveness exceed the Vega, and the river that sweeps the valley at our feet would become the theme of song and story, even as the sweet rivers of home. Found thou here a city, said the queen, and in a radiance of glory she ascended from the earth and left me alone. I awoke and found it to be a dream? No, a vision, such a vision as that of St. John. The vision as we now behold it, minus the presence of the queen, has ever been before me. While tossed on the waves of the ocean, I could see it. It was before me on the battlefield, in the camp, at the guard post, on the march, ever present, asleep or awake. And now, Corporal, with the help of Our Lady, the favor of God, the permission of Don Philippe, and the assistance of the Most Reverend Father President, I am going to found the city, Los Angeles. Long have I served the King, the Corporal, the Brave, and now have grown gray in my service. Tomorrow, comrades, beg our discharge, gather the few that are free, procure the proper authority, and found a city for Our Lady. I comprehend your thoughts, comrades. I know we are poor. Imperial Rome had a small beginning. So will ours. But there must be a starting point for every enterprise. Ours will have to be the special protection of Our Lady Queen, the favor of God, and will grow to be one of the brightest jewels of the earth.
Comrades, how shall we proceed? The corporal and the other, having become possessed of the spirit of inspiration, with the sergeant pledged themselves to the enterprise, and agreed upon a point whereon to locate the city of Los Angeles. They saddled the horses, struck their tent, and the Indian, having repacked the mule, the small group took up its line of march to San Gabriel. On the day following the meeting on the bluff, after mass, guard mounting, and the other military duties at San Gabriel, the good Sergeant Navarro, followed by the corporal and the others, presented themselves to Don Philippe, governor and military commandant of California laid before him their plans and begged their discharge from the military service of Spain. They, in addition to long service in other parts of the world, had been ten years in California. At first the governor was disposed to discourage the foundation of a city and inquired of the sergeant where he would procure his city. The sergeant was prepared for the question and informed him that himself and the other two would be of the charge. Then he counted five others at San Gabriel, two at San Diego, and two in San Juan Capistrano, all of whom would join in forming the settlement. The father president of the missions was then consulted, who having promised material and spiritual aid on the 26th day of August, 1781, Don Philippe signed the order directing the foundation of the Pueblo. And on the 5th of September, 100 years ago, the war-scarred veteran Navarro, bearing the image of Los Angeles, followed by the others, unfurled banner of Spain, carrying the cross to be erected on the plaza of the new city. Then came the nine other founders followed by the women and children to the number of 36. The mission fathers and nuns of San Gabriel were present. The governor and military, lest the guard, were on the ground to add to the pomp and ceremony of the occasion. Mid blare of trumpet, beat of drum, and chant of the priests, the cross was erected, mass duly done, the plaza was marked out, and the procession of priests, nuns, soldiers, women, children, and Indians marched in joyful yet solemn procession to celebrate the birth of the new city, Queen of the Angels after which the governor, military, mission fathers, and the nuns departed for the mission, leaving the brave sergeant and the group with their wives and their children in quiet possession of the newborn city. What a lovely beginning of a city. But now, let's fast forward a hundred years to about 1870, and let's see what kind of people hung out in Los Angeles, and if it was quite that most amazing city that the founders thought it would turn out to be. Here's a story, again, from the same author of what he witnessed, Major Horace Bell. The author felt highly flattered at not only being permitted to breathe the same air, tread the same soil, but to actually live in the same town and to meet, pass, and repass on terms of absolute equality such distinguished men as those referred to. The privilege was certainly a great one, and the author, as foresaid, was prone to feel and appreciate it to the fullest extent. Many other parties who had killed their half-dozen were pointed out, but save and except one. I think Crooked Nose and Bob were the most entitled to mention. The exception above noted was a native Californian named Ricardo Irves who, in manner and appearance, was the most perfect specimen of a desperado I ever beheld. Ricardo could stand more shooting and stabbing than the average bull or grizzly bear. I remember that on one lovely Sabbath afternoon, Ricardo got into a fight at the upper end of the plaza. 
it was beset with a crowd fully intent on securing his scalp. He was attacked in front, rear, and on each flank. He was shot, stabbed, and stoned. His clothes were literally cut from his body. Still, he fought his way, revolver in one hand, bowie knife in the other. All the way past the old corral corner to Aliso and Los Angeles streets, where his horse was hitched. He quietly mounted, bareheaded, bleeding from at least a score of wounds. The crowd had fallen back into the narrow street, where lay some half-dozen bleeding victims to bear witness to the certainty of Ricardo's aim. The writer had witnessed the whole affair from the upstairs veranda of Captain Bell's residence on the corner of Los Angeles and Aliso streets, and seeing that there were a multitude against one felt greatly excited in favor of the one. And it was with a secret prayer of thanks that I saw this heroic fellow, who was so cut and carved that his own mother would have failed to recognize him, emerge from the crowded street, come to bay, and drive his pursuers back. What then was my surprise to see him deliberately ride back to the place whence he had so miraculously escaped. It seemed that he had fired the last shot from his heavy colt, for when he charged through the street, he used his revolver as a war club and scattered and drove his enemies like sheep. He then rode off into what is now called Sonora and got his wounds bandaged up. It afterwards transpired that he had been shot three times in the body and stabbed all over. He then put in a full hour riding up and down Main Street in front of the Bella Union, daring any gringo officer to arrest him. None being bold enough to make the attempt, the gentle Ricardo took his quiet departure for his sister's property. Ricardo was brave. An army of 100,000 of his likes would be invincible. But Ricardo's courage was that of the lion or the tiger, and like those of the baron of the brute of creation. When brought face to face with moral as well as physical courage, the animal bravery of the desperado would quail. One day, a quiet young gentleman passing through an alley and found Don Ricardo on the warpath. He was tormenting, berating, and abusing everyone who came in his way, and was particular in his abuse of a young man who seemed to be a stranger and to be greatly frightened. The young gentleman stopped for a moment and authoritatively ordered the domineering of Don to desist. The astonishment of Ricardo was beyond description. He looked angrily at the young man for a minute, then quietly drawing his bowie knife, started deliberately for him. In an instant, he was covered with a small revolver and commanded to stop. One more step, said the gringo, and you're a dead man. With his eye, he caught that of Ricardo and gazed fixedly into his terrible tiger-like orbs. Ricardo halted and commenced to threaten. Put up that knife, said the young gringo. Ricardo flourished his knife and swore. Stop that, said the gringo, with his eyes still riveted on those of the human hyena. The dawn stopped. Ricardo sheathed his bowie. Be gone, said the gringo. And to the utter astonishment of the congregated crowd, Ricardo turned and slunk away. At this juncture, Jim Barton, the sheriff, with a party, arrived on the scene and congratulated the victorious gringo on his achievement. And then, and not until then, did the gentleman know of the desperate character of his antagonist. It was a fine example of moral and physical over mere brute courage. 
the younger gringo referred to afterward became governor of the great state of California, and in discharge of the highest trust confided to him, displayed the same degree of moral courage that first manifested itself in the motley crowd in the alley and made the best governor possibly our state had ever had. The young gringo was ex-governor John G. Downey, our one and the same. It will be the duty of the chronicler to make one more mention of the rough-and-tumble Ricardo, and then permit him to hand in his checks. I think it was about a year after the great fight above referred to, which took place in the summer of 1853, that a bullet hit the dawn in the vital part and sent him to kingdom come. It is somewhat of a digression, but I may as well tell you the story now as at any time. It was in 1851 that Jim Irvin, with a gang of desperados to the number of 25 or 30, stopped at Los Angeles on their way to Mexico in search of Ladies' Fair and Pastures Green. Some of the gang found some friends in jail and soon to be tried in the district court, then sitting in the old Bella Union. Jim concluded to take the prisoners out of the hands of the sheriff and take them along with him and waited for them to be brought out for trial with that object in view. It happened that a party of the United States troops were temporarily camped near the city and it was arranged that they should be put in appearance just at the time the prisoners were to be brought in. The court opened, Jim Irvin marched in with his gang and grimly awaited the arrival of the prisoners, who were presently at hand, and at the same instant a platoon of troops drew up before the door, and an officer came into the court with the sheriff. Jim and his gang were given permission to leave the country, otherwise they would be arrested. They went directly to Coyote's Ranch, 30 miles from the city on the road to Mexico. On their arrival in the evening, they surprised the ranch and made a hostage of Ricardo, whom they tied up and threatened to shoot unless he had the best horses the ranch could afford driven up, ready for their inspection by daylight in the morning. All their demands were complied with to the very letter. Supper was prepared for them, wine set out, and they were permitted without objection to appropriate what articles they choose, such as saddles, blankets, provisions, etc. And the ranch at the time was one of the richest and best supplied in the county. Senor Ocampo and wife were then in the city, and Ricardo was in charge of the estate. In the morning, after appropriating what they wanted of the most valuable horses, the gang packed up and left, immediately after which Ricardo was released. Without saying a word or leaving an order, he mounted a horse. He had understood enough of the conversation carried on between the robbers to know that they were going to the Colorado River and would go through the San Giorgiano Pass. He started in hot haste across the Chino Hills to get in head of the party whom he had doomed to destruction. Long before the glorious orb of day ceased to cast his beaming rays on the head of grim old Mount San Bernardino, Ricardo lay in silent ambush with a chosen band of Chihuahua Indians, who at the time were numerous in the vicinity of the San Giorgiano. They had not long to wait. About sunset, the devoted party came into sight, hilarious as only men can be who have no thought beyond the immediate present. They rode quietly into the ambush and were slaughtered to a man. The Indians, who thought it to be a perfectly legitimate transaction, gave an account of the affair, 
and said that Ricardo fought like a fiend incarnate. And while the Indians fought from the place of concealment, Ricardo rushed forth on horseback, and meeting his foes face to face, let them know that he was the avengers of his own wrongs. The author had the honor of eating beef stew and red pepper, beans, and tortillas at Ricardo's table, partaking of his hospitality under his own roof and discussing this whole question with him. And while placing him in the front rank of the desperados, it is only justice to say that, though desperate he empathetically was, he was neither robber nor gambler, but a good-hearted, honest fellow who just fought for the very love of fighting. For fighting was the order of the day, and a man who could not fight was forced into the back seat like the poor boy at the frolic. There you go, 1850s in Los Angeles, a true mad Wild West town. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening. These are the true stories that made it wild.